Welcome to the Bethel Free Baptist Church Weekly Sermons. The following podcast is part 127 in the series Contending for the Faith. This is the morning service of Sunday the 17th of August 2014, entitled The Genesis Account Part 4. And the Bible reading is taken from Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, to Genesis 2, chapter 3. Here's Pastor Larry T. Curtis. We've been going through a series on contending for the faith. We have a faith that needs to be contended for. And of course, we've been looking because there are many things that people try to make fundamentals of that faith that really aren't fundamentals. But one of the greater dangers today is the fact that many of the fundamentals are being cast aside. And of course, as we've been looking, this will be the fourth in our sermons on the Genesis account. We said that there are many today that would claim to be Bible believers that we even claim to be evangelicals. We've looked at all these different things. And yet, for some reason or another, they do not take the Genesis account for what it says. As we began to look, we've said a lot of things. And uh, if you weren't here, then uh, if you want, you can go back and listen to them online. Uh, but we began, first of all, as we looked, and, and just uh, before that we uh, read from Genesis chapter 1, I'd like to read two passages of Scripture very quickly. First of all, in in Jude, verses 1 through 4, which gives us and tells us the importance of contending for this faith that has been delivered to us. I invite you to stand to honor the reading of God's holy word, reading first of all from Jude, verses 1 to 4. Jude, the servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to them that are sanctified by God the Father... And preserved in Jesus Christ and called. I hope that includes you this morning. Mercy unto you and peace and love be multiplied. Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation, it was needful for me to write unto you and exhort you that ye should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. Many today would want to stand for some kind of a faith, but not the faith that was once and for all delivered to the saints. It says, For there are certain men crept in unawares who were before of old ordained to this condemnation, ungodly men, turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness and denying the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. And of course, one of Satan's greatest tricks is to creep in unawares. He doesn't want you to know who he is. He doesn't want you to know that uh, that he's fighting against you, but he slips in unawares. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, reading verses 20 and 21, the last two verses in Paul's first letter to Timothy, he said, O Timothy, keep that which is committed to thy trust, avoiding profane and vain babblings, and oppositions of science falsely so-called, which some professing have erred concerning the faith. Grace be with thee. Amen. And I believe that that verse there, those two verses, are particularly relevant when we're looking at our subject this morning of the Genesis account. And of course, As we look into Genesis chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, the Word of God says, In the beginning God created the heaven and the earth. 
And the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw the light that it was good. My pages are stuck together. And God divided the light from the darkness. And God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And the evening and the morning were the first day. And God said, let there be a firmament in the midst of the waters and let it divide the waters from the waters. And God made the firmament and divided the waters which were under the firmament from the waters which were above the firmament. And it was so. And God called the firmament heaven. And the evening and the morning were the second day. And God said, let the waters under the heaven be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. And God called the dry land earth, and the gathering together of the waters called he seas. And God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth bring forth grass, the herb yielding seed, and the fruit tree yielding fruit after his kind, whose seed is in itself upon the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth grass and herb yielding seed after his kind, and the tree yielding fruit whose seed was in itself after his kind. And God saw that it was good. And the evening and the morning were the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the firmament of the heaven to divide the day from the night. And let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And let them be for lights in the firmament of the heaven to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night. He made the stars also. And God set them in the firmament of the heavens to give light upon the earth and to rule over the day and over the night and to divide the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And the evening and the morning were the fourth day. And God said, let the waters bring forth abundantly the moving creature that hath life and fowl that may fly above the earth in the open firmament of heaven. And God created great whales and every living creature that moveth, which the water brought forth abundantly after their kind, and every winged fowl after his kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters in the seas and let the fowl multiply in the earth. And the evening and the morning were the fifth day. God said, let the earth bring forth the living creature after his kind, cattle and creeping thing and beast of the earth after his kind, and it was so. And God made the beast of the earth after his kind and cattle after their kind and everything that creepeth upon the earth after his kind, and God saw that it was good. And God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him. Male and female created he them. God blessed them. And God said unto them, Be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over every living thing that moveth upon the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every herb-bearing seed which is upon the face of all the earth and every tree in the which is the fruit of a tree yielding seed. To you it shall be for meat. To every beast of the earth and to every fowl of the air, to everything that creepeth upon the earth, 
wherein there is life, I have given every green herb for meat, and it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And the evening and the morning were the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day God ended his work which he had made, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had made. And God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because that in it he had rested from all his work, which God created and made. Father, thank you so much that we can be gathered in your house this morning. Thank you that we can be gathered here as your children, knowing that we are in your midst. Thank you, Father, for your word that you've preserved for us that we have before us. Thank you for your Holy Spirit that lives and dwells within us, that only through he we can have understanding, but that this day we can have understanding because he is here, not only with us, but in us. So, Father, as we take this most important time now to look into your holy and precious word, we pray not for the thoughts of man, not for the wisdom of man. We pray that you would use your unworthy servant this morning to speak to the hearts of each individual because, God, we see only the outward, but you see the inward. You know the hearts of each individual here today. You know the need of each heart. You know, if there be one in our midst today that does not know Jesus Christ, their creator, as their Lord and God, as their Savior. And Father, you know those here this morning that though they be your children, they may be struggling, they may be walking afar off, or maybe they're carrying some particular specific burden at this time. Father, I pray as only you can that you would speak to hearts and meet the needs of those hearts. And Lord, that when we leave here today, Lord, all the glory, all the honor would be yours. And Lord, that our lives in some way would be more like you. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen and amen. We said that two of the daunting biggest questions that man has to deal with and that certainly is always before him is where did we come from? How did all of this begin? And secondly, where are we going? How is all of this going to finish up in the end? And I believe that God has the answers to those questions very clearly in his word. And as we begin, first of all, to look at these things, we, we talked about a number of things that are these differences between man's ideas, these sciences falsely so-called. We said that many times, of course, as creationist, that word is said and identifies us as somehow somebody that's less intelligent, somebody that's less wise, somebody that, that, that doesn't have a good thinking capacity. But we said in actual fact, everybody is a creationist. You see, they say that we are creationists, but in fact, everybody believes it started somewhere. The real difference is whether or not that we believe in some kind of spontaneous creation where it all came into existence by itself. And we'd looked at many of those things and some of science's so falsely called ideas on that subject. So we either believe in that spontaneous creation or we believe in a supernatural creation. That rather than it creating itself and just suddenly coming into being from these different ideas, that there was actually a God 
that was wise enough to plan all of this and by his great power created it and brought it into being. And as we thought of those ideas, we moved on and we said that the Genesis account, yes, it is a book of beginnings. But that book of beginnings affects many, many things in our lives. And we talked about that passage in, in Psalm 11, verse 3. If the foundations be destroyed, what can the righteous do? You see, many today would say they do not have to believe in a literal Genesis creation account, but that they can still be Bible believers, that they can still hold to some kind of a fundamental faith. Well, that's between them and God. I find that extremely hard to to grasp because I made a statement to you that if the Bible, if it is authoritative in anything, it is authoritative in all. If it's authoritative at all, it's authoritative in everything. You can't have it both ways. Either we accept what God says for what he says, whether we fully understand it, whether it makes sense to us, whether it fits into our finite minds or not, if God said it, is that the authority that we're going to base it on? So we said, first of all, the first foundation that the Genesis account has very, very much to do with is the very authority of God's Word. Because how can we not accept the Genesis account, but yet accept anything else in it? We can't. We can't do it both ways. So we find that the foundation, the beginnings that we're looking at here, it's not just a matter of whether we believe that God created this earth in seven literal or six literal days and on the seventh rested. It is the very foundation for the authority of God's word. When we begin with God's word in the beginning, do we accept it? Do we believe it? Or do we not? And then we look next at not only is the Genesis account foundational to the authority of God's Word. But we said, secondly, that it is foundational to the very assertion of God's existence in the beginning. It's the first three words. It's a book of beginnings. What is the very first word that follows? In the beginning, God. We looked at a number of things pertaining to that. But the truth is, is that if we do away with the Genesis account, how can we even assert, assert that a God genuinely exists? That's where it all begins. He was the only thing in the beginning, God. We find that, we find that as we move to our thoughts today, I want to use another word that begins with an A, and I chose this word very carefully. You see, the Genesis account is foundational to the authority of God's Word. It is foundational to the very assertion of God's existence. But today, I want you to recognize that it is foundational to the absoluteness of God's creation. In the beginning, the eternally existent triune God, which we've already looked at, created, literally brought into existence the heaven and the earth. 
In the beginning, God, Elohim, that triune God that holds the power of the universe, literally brought into existence the heaven and the earth. All of the temporal, material universe that exists. Everything, everything materially that exists in this universe, he brought it into existence. What do I mean when I say the absoluteness of God's creation in that? Well, if you look up the word absoluteness, here's the definition that you'll find. First of all, free from imperfection, complete, perfect, not mixed or adulterated, outright. What are you saying, preacher? I'm saying that God and God alone is responsible for the act of creation. And that God's act of creation was complete, it was perfect, it was not mixed with anything else such as evolution or anything else, and it was done outright by Him, by His power, through the power of His Word, with no outside assistance whatsoever. And He didn't need billions of years to do it, praise God. In the beginning, God created. The word there in the Hebrew is the word bara, B-A-R-A. And it's translated created in our Bibles. And do you know that if you look that word up everywhere from the first page of your Bible all the way to the end, that word, B-A-R-A, -A, is only ever used in Scripture when God is the subject. <laughs> when God is the one doing the action. Bara is a word of action, of bringing into existence. It's only ever, ever used anywhere with God being the one that's performing that action. In other words, it is used exclusively in Scripture for an act of creation that is carried out by God alone. In context, when we think of that, when we look at simply what the word is saying, it doesn't even seem rational for it to mean anything except the instantaneous and miraculous bringing into existence of the universe without any pre-existing material and without any outside help. Of course, you can look at a number of passages, and I don't have time to go there and read them all. If you're taking notes and there's some space on the back of your bulletin if you need it, just jot down these scriptures. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 28 Isaiah chapter 45 and verse 8. Isaiah 45 verse 12. Verse 18. Isaiah 48 13. Jeremiah 10 16. Acts 17 24. If you didn't write them down fast enough, see me afterwards and you can write them down from my notes. Amen. But those are just all these passages that affirm what he's saying here in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1. In the beginning, God created God alone by his power brought into existence everything that exists he says created the heaven and the earth and we've already stated that the heaven and the earth that God created that it includes everything in the universe it does not in any way signify a port a part of it or some portion of it. We find that it says the heaven and the earth 
which it, it includes everything that exists, both upon this earth and as far as man can see and what man still can't see out into that universe. Some place a large segment of time between verse 1 and verse 2 here. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. Take it for what it said. Verse 2 says, And the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. Now, there are many. I have, wow, how long have I been preaching? <laughs> i tell you that, you know how old I am, amen. A long time. And for most of those years, I've preached from a Schofield study Bible. But guess what? Mr. Schofield's notes are not the Word of God. And one of the things you'll find even in this study Bible right here is that he places this gap between verses 1 and verses 2, which allow for these millions of years that are needed to take place for all these things to happen as science said they happened. Well, that's put there simply because they didn't want to seem stupid to a scientific world. They didn't know what they were talking about in the first place. They wanted to seem somehow more educated. I say to you that that is just as clearly as it possibly can be part of that science falsely so-called that Paul wrote to Timothy about. It is an erroneous idea that is placed there that the Bible knows nothing about. The earth was without form and void and darkness was upon the face of the deep and the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters without form and void. What does that mean? Well, it means specifically in its original wording, it means something that is unformed and not finished. It's not completely shaped yet. It's not been filled or inhabited yet. And that is precisely and exactly dig them up, look them up, instead of listening to what some man says, look at what the Word of God says. When he says that it was without form and void, it means God hadn't finished his work yet. But it didn't mean anywhere in there that he needed millions and millions of years to be able to do it. He created it. He brought it into existence. But let me tell you something. In the following verses... God gives us the information of how he formed that which he had created, how that he inhabited that which he had created. There is nothing in those words to point to some chaotic condition that some want to try to place there and to put there. Throughout the remainder of our reading in Genesis chapter 1, God records for us precisely how that he formed it. How that he filled his creation. Now, we don't have time to go through that verse by verse unless you want to still be here when we start showing the, uh, the slides this evening. But I want to point out some foundational truths that are common to all six days of creation that are listed in this chapter. These truths, I believe, leave no question as to the precise creative act of God that was accomplished by His Word as He commanded it to be done. First of all, we see an assertion of God's Word. An assertion of God's Word activates the creative act. In every instance, we find those words, and 
God said. It was God speaking that initiated that creative act. When God spoke, it happened. All six days of creation begin with those words. The act of creation was activated, was set in motion, if you would, by the spoken word of God. And God said, everything that was created, God spoke it. You don't find it any other way. God spoke it. Not only that, but we see that after God spoke, he spoke specifically. An authoritative command accentuates that precise act. When God spoke, in every case, he spoke a precise command with absolute authority. Let there be. You find those three words, let there be. Those, use, those words are always used when he has brought something into existence that did not exist before. When he has brought something into existence out of nothing, the Bible says God spoke. And he commanded with authority, let there be. Or, you find the words, let thee or let them. Let thee, something that he had already brought into existence, let them that he had brought into existence, for example, the waters or the earth, something that was already created, but it's being changed or formed into a specific fashion. God has already created it. And then he forms it. Let those waters do this. Let this land do this. Let thee or let them. And it happens. And the other creative act, let us make man. And every one of them, read down through there, you'll either find God saying, let there be, bringing something into existence that did not exist before, or God will say, let thee, or let them that he has brought into existence do something or bring forth something or change in some way, or let us make man in our image. God, in his triune fullness of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, Making man in his very own image. You see, in every case, God speaks an authoritative command for a precise act of creation to take place. And when he does, it is immediately followed in every case by an affirmation of the accomplishment of that creative act. For each act of creation, it is affirmed that when God spoke and commanded it, the next words you'll see is, it was done. God speaks. He gives a precise command with the authority that only God has. And the next thing you see is, it was done. When God spoke it, when God commanded, exactly what he spoke to happen, happened every time. We find that it always, each act, commonly followed by, and there was, or and it was so. Praise God. God speaks. He speaks with authority. Not just some generic, but precisely for an act of creation to take place. It's done. No exception. 
and is followed by an affirmation of God himself that that accomplishment has been finished. And then there's an acclamation of God, of his approval of what he'd done. God says it, and when he says it, only his authority, only his spoken word, he precisely tells it what to do. It's done. And then he goes back and just like in, in verse 31, he says, And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. God was pleased. What he had done was perfect. Now, that's the only place you find at the end of it all that he says that it was very good. Literally, it was exceedingly good. It was beyond being good. <laughs> you see, all through the creation act, you find oftentimes things saying, it was good. It was good. It was good. It was good. Each act was good. But boy, when it was all completed together, and it was a finished act, he said it was very good. It was very good. It was exactly what he planned it to be. And fifthly, this one is what throws some people. An absolute time scale was afforded to the creative act. Some say, okay, I believe God did it. But what I have trouble with is that 24-hour day, that he did it in what we actually call days. Well, you know, it was here. In the very first chapter of the Word of God, that God establishes a pattern of seven days making a week. And he does it during the creative act in Genesis. Following each of those six creative days, you will find these words, and the evening and the morning were the first day, the second day, the third day, the fourth day, the fifth day, the sixth day, right through. The morning and the evening were that day. And on the seventh, he rested. Some would say they just don't believe that those days are what we call 24-hour days. Why do they say that? Well, because, again, they're trying to fit into man's thinking some way. And they say, well, that word day there, it doesn't necessarily speak of a 24-hour day. Well, they're right. Matter of fact, in the first two chapters of Genesis, the word day is used in at least three different ways. So you've got to give them that. First of all, we find if we look into chapter 1, verse 5, it says, And God called the light day, and the darkness he called night, and the evening and the morning were the first day. Here, and God called the light, that's just the light part of day. And God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. So in that instance, he's talking about just the light part of the day as being a day. And you find the same thing in verse 14, 16, and 18. So, okay, in this instance, when he's using the word day, he's talking about day versus night, the light portion of the day versus the dark portion. Then in verse 14, and God said, let there be lights in the firmament of the heaven to divide the day from the night and let them be for signs and for seasons and for what? For days and for years. So here he's talking about a 24 hours. Let the night and the day be for days, for years and seasons. So there he's talking about literally 
a solar day, that 24 hours as the earth rotates upon its axis. But then notice what he says in chapter 2 and verse 4. These are the generations of the heavens and of the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. He's speaking of a period of time relating to an event. We use the same thing later in the New Testament when we talk about the day of the Lord. Not talking about just a 24-hour period, not talking about just the light part of the day, but this whole event, the day of the Lord that's belonging to Him. So we find at least those three ways there. Now, if that word day is used in all these different ways, and yes, sometimes it's speaking of a 24-hour day, but not always, how can we be so definitive that the days of creation are measured. Now, they probably didn't have a uh, Timex or a Bulliver or whatever all those, you know, Seikos and, and, uh, and watches are out there that, that, that count off 24 hours as we do. But we're talking about a solar day that we measure in 24 hours in increments. How do we know that? Well, I want to give you two very good primary reasons that we can know that with absolute certainty. First of all, on every day of creation, where that word day is used, it is preceded, means coming before that is an adjective. First day, second day, third day, fourth day, right the way through, every one of those days are preceded by a numerical adjective. Well, in the Hebrew language, everywhere, everywhere, go all the way through, Anytime that the word day is preceded by a numerical adjective, it always, always, always refers only to a 24-hour day. It never means anything else. In the Hebrew language, it can't mean anything else. I'm not a Hebrew scholar. That's not, that, don't, that doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure that out. It just takes a very simple word study. You see... In all these cases, unless God used the word day different in every one of these creative acts than anywhere else in the language and anywhere else in Scripture, then it's got to be speaking of a 24-hour day. It's not even reasonable that it means anything else. And then we find these words. In each case, very specifically, and the evening and the morning were the first day, the second day. The evening and the morning were, numerical adjective day, the evening and the morning, an evening and a morning is not a year. It's certainly not a thousand years or a million years or a billion years. An evening and a morning is a 24-hour day as we know it. You know, some would just say that it's just speaking of a period of time, a beginning and an ending as an evening and a morning but I believe that the Bible is very, very definitive. You have to want it to mean something else. In order to make the word day mean anything other than a 24-hour period, first of all, you're going to have to violate all the normal rules of grammar that are used with that word and the language that it was written in that God gave it to us in. And then you've also got to take the evening and the morning to mean something other than what it's saying an evening, and a morning. There's one further statement that 
I would like you to consider in this creative act. And that's the first few verses that we read of chapter 2. Notice it says, Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day God ended his work which he had made, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had made. And God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because that in it he had rested from all his work which God created and made. The first creative act of Genesis chapter 1, between verses 1 and 2, in other words, now, it's no longer, what were those words? Without form and void, without shape and empty. See, God, first of all, he created it. Then he goes through and in six days, he shapes it like he wants it and he feels it the way he wants to by speaking with his authority. And it being accomplished, him affirming that it's been accomplished, and him coming along and absolutely himself showing his own approval that what he's done is good, that it's right, that it's what it's supposed to be. These verses state clearly and affirmatively four times that God had finished or completed his work of creation and three times that it included all of his work. The fact that he rested on the seventh day, that doesn't in any way imply that God got so tired and weary that he just had to sit down and rest for a while. No, it implies that when he rested that he ceased. He desisted, if you would, from his work of creation. Why? Because it was finished. Because it was complete. Because there was nothing else to do with it. God is also establishing the foundation for a day of rest for man. The word that he uses there is also used when he talks about this day of rest. It comes from the same root word as the word Sabbath. <laughs> that would be built upon later in his ordinances to Moses and whatnot. Mark tells us in Mark 2.27 that the Sabbath was made for who? Not for God so he could rest because he was so tired. He said the Sabbath was made for man. God did everything that he did in six days. And on the seventh, he ceased. He quit what he was doing because it was complete. And it was perfect. It was what that it was supposed to be. And he established that pattern for us to last right through to, to, to the time we're sitting right here this morning. He made the Sabbath for us to give us that pattern for the day of rest. In his very act of creation, he was giving us that pattern. What do we conclude from all of this? Very simply, the absoluteness of God's creation. We've seen the evidence laid down in Scripture for making that statement. If we do accept the authority of God's Word, the Genesis account declares for itself that God, in all of his triune fullness, 
created and brought into existence everything that is from nothing. It further declares that he did that in six literal 24-hour days and that he rested on the seventh. His work of creation was complete. It was perfect. It was not mixed with anything else like evolution or the gap theory or anything else. And he accomplished it outright by himself, by his power, through his spoken word with no assistance from anyone. That's what I mean by the absoluteness of God's creation. How important is that to you and I? Well, we'll look at some other things. But I'll say to you right here this morning that each and every one of us were not an accident. We didn't come from some bowl of cosmic soup. We didn't originate with some tadpole or some gorilla or orangutan. Or we were created in the image of God himself. God did it. He planned it. He performed it. So everything that we are, our life itself, we owe it all to him. He put us here. He gave us everything. Everything was out there for us. Even the day of rest was for us. God planned it for you and I. Of course, if we do away with that, then first of all, we do away with the thing that we have always, every day of our life, to be most thankful for. That's life itself. Life itself. Today we can always praise him and, and thank him because he has given us life. But you see, it's not only that. If you do away with that, you do away with a lot of other things. When you start trying to bring man's science, that's, you know, another word for knowledge, falsely so-called, just because man calls it knowledge. You know, God's not somehow trying to promote ignorance, <laughs> stupidity. The truth is, is that we're not able to comprehend everything that's there. But I'm saying to you that if the foundations be destroyed, what will the righteous do? Can somebody be a Christian and not believe in literal 24 hours of creation? Well, yes. They can. But remember where we started. Remember this. You can build a lot of things. And it may stand. But when a strong enough storm comes along, if it's not on a solid foundation, it will fall. It will fall. Many people's faith falls because it's not built on a foundation. It doesn't mean they don't have faith. But it's not built on the solid foundation. We're getting ready to sing as we close here, literally right now, as Shelly comes to the piano. I know we've sung it, I think, at least two, if not all three of the times I've been on the Genesis account. But I want it in our heads and our minds and our hearts how firm a foundation, you saints of the Lord. Folks, the firm foundation is right here. I want to say to you, this is vital. It is important. Not that you can't be a Christian and not believe it, but if you're saved and you don't grasp the importance of this, you're building on a weak foundation. Some storms may come along and blow you. There, there are undoubtedly Christians that have believed other things, but they're digging away at the foundation. They're taking away that foundation that is there for the very authority of God's Word, for the very assertion that a God exists, 
and for the absoluteness of God's creation. They want to add something in, mix something in, take something out, change it just a little bit, not make it complete, not make it perfect. God did it right, and he did it for you. And you know, that same God that created you and gave you life was the same God that came some 4,000 years later and let them nail him to a cross and shed his blood because he knew right there, we didn't, it didn't take us long after he created us to be with him forever. It didn't take us long to commit that first sin. You see, accountability goes out the window when you take away the authority of God's word and the absoluteness of God's creation. We're accountable to God because it's only to him that we can credit our life at all. And so if you're here today and you've never put your faith and trust, whatever else you've done, whatever religious thing that you've done, I want you to know today the same God that created you from nothing in the beginning is the same God that died on a cross for you, shed his blood for you because he created us to live eternally with him. We threw it away in sin, and we'll look at some of those things in the coming weeks, but we threw it away. But God's given it back to us in His Son, Jesus Christ. He wants you to have life. He wants you to have life everlasting. And I just want to say to you today, you all look good to me. But if you've never, ever admitted your sinfulness, humbly with all your heart, simply cried out to God for forgiveness and knew that He would do it because of what Jesus did for you, you can do that today. I'd love to take God's Word that solid foundation to show you how you can do that. And Christian, has the world been knocking you about? Has the world been bashing you around the place as your faith seemed to falter and waver? Maybe in lots of other different areas. Listen, whatever way the devil might have been knocking you about, your faith has got to be on a solid foundation. It begins with page one in your Bible. Maybe today God's just wanting to remind you just how great a God that he is that nothing is beyond his power, that everything else only exists because of him. Maybe today, whatever it is that's been knocking you about, that's been, maybe he's just trying to remind you, believe me, take me for my word. Build upon the solid foundation so that nothing, no matter what storm this world brings along, no matter what Satan tries to throw at you, you're going to be firmly planted. Father, I thank you for this morning. Lord, you know my heart. You know, Lord, that when it comes to your word and what you said, that it, it just means everything. And I know how Satan will try to come and he'll try to, Lord, for the lost person, he'll try to get them to doubt before they ever have that faith to be able to just put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ and his finished work. Lord, I believe that one of his great tools in our day and in, for a number of years now has been to undermine the very foundation of the Genesis account that we're all here because of you. We only exist because of you. But you created us to be with you forever. You sent your son to die for us so that that could be made possible after we fell in the garden. So I pray today for everyone that is here. Lord, speak to the heart of that one that may be lost. Help them not to leave here with those doubts today. There's no reason for them. Lord, they're, they're playing with their eternity. Lord, for every Christian. We know the battles are real. We've looked in recent times, Lord, at the fact that we have to fight battles every day of our lives. That's part of the Christian walk. But the victory is ours in Jesus Christ. 
whatever the Christian may be struggling with here today, help them to come back to your word, the authority of your word, that what you said, that's it, no matter what. That's, that's all that it takes. Lord, help them to come back and realize that because of your word, that you are there, that you brought everything else that is into being. Lord, do the work that only you can do, and we give you the praise and thanks for it. In Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen.